does God cause or allow the pain? So this is a, this is a great question. I would say I try to look at everything through the lens of Jesus. Okay, so let's look at Jesus' life. Now, Jesus came. He lived a sinless life, spotless. He performed miracles, did things. He wasn't accepted in his hometown. He lived 30 years on the earth, had three years of public ministry, and then it was time for him to be the sacrificial lamb. Right. My question is, God could have done it a different way. God could have allowed Jesus not to suffer. God could allow Jesus not to go to Gethsemane, not to go to the cross. I think the ultimate question is, do we win? And I would say yes, because the Bible says that he always causes us to triumph. He leads us into victory. There will always be a resurrection. Before we get started today, I would be remiss if I did not thank our partners over at Proper Creative. Proper Creative is a production on demand company and they monetize e commerce platforms. They have a marketing powerhouse team from graphic designers, web development, photographers, videographers, market analysis, digital marketing strategists, and of course, social media experts. They help companies from development of content and products to the execution of digital strategies for e-commerce. They provide both full service and a la carte services for businesses that sell direct to the consumers. For me today, I am wearing a proper creative branded shirt. This is the Level Up Podcast shirt. You can get it. And uh, this is something that we send to all of our guests that come on our show. Our partners send them a gift package, and it's brought to you by Proper Creative. Thank you so much. You can follow them on social media, Instagram primarily, at P-R-O-P-R Creative. Again, they're an L.A.-based company, so they do things a little bit cooler than most. They spell proper, P-R-O-P-R Creative. Follow them on social media, Instagram, and give a shout-out. Thank you so much, again, to our brand partners, Proper Creative. Welcome to another week of Level Up. I am Matt Rogers, and as always, sidekick here with me, co-producer and engineer, the golden boy with the golden beard, Eli Adelman. How are you today, man? You know, if I was any better, my last name would be Adelman, the chosen people. That's right. God. That's right. Jewish ones. You just learned that, and you love it. I am, like, dude, because I I think I feel official now. Yeah. Because my producer's Jewish, and (laughs) anytime you have a Jewish producer, it's usually good, and because... You can always count on the best lawyers and producers being Jewish. <laughs> that's right. So there you go. Lawyers and bankers. But yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but you are rare because you are a Jewish Christian. Yep. How did that happen? My mom. Really? Yeah. So your dad was Jewish and your mom was My Christian? dad's like Jewish. He, uh, you know, we did. <laughs> I like that one. Uh, we like, I think I went to temple like twice in my life. And then we did like Hanukkah and all that. But... Do you celebrate Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah? Um, yeah, like if my family's together, we'll, we'll do it. It's kind of like an excuse to get together and have food. When you that. meet people, do you say hello or shalom? Depends on the person. Really? No, no, no I say Because you've never said shalom to me. I don't know if I should be offended. Well, I don't know. We'll find out. The crazy thing, too, is before I introduce our guests, is now, because I know you're Jewish, when I look at you, now you actually look like a rabbi to me. <laughs> you can't unsee <laughs> you it. You look Jewish now. <laughs> so good. Before you looked like Native American, and now that you're <laughs> Jewish, like you're Jewish. Okay, I, I look Native it. American. What? Well, yeah. Wow. That's good. Okay. It's the beard, bro. Yeah. You look fantastic. Anyway, another man who looks fantastic. Our first in studio 
guest. And when I say in studio, I mean in the fifth wheel in my driveway here in Spring Hill, Tennessee, first class studio. My friend is in the house, Jeremy Canaday. How are you? Doing well, doing so well. Such a great uh, honor to be on the Level Up podcast today. You're the man. With my man, Matt Rogers. Man, I love you. And we're being safe because I already had the Rona a month ago, so I could literally lick his seat and cough on him, and everyone would be okay. Not that you would care anyway, because you're fearless. Look at you. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about being licked, but... (laughs) I don't know about being licked. So... Why I want to tell people like why you're great the way you believe we're going to get into pastoring but like t- tell me about your family tell everyone about your family first because you have an amazing story with your family you moved here from Florida you also have an adopted son from China Luke tell us about everyone sure. in your family so uh, Shannon and I we've been married for 20 years uh, we both grew up as pastors kids and I say one of two things are going to happen with that. Either you're going to be nuts and crazy or you're going to turn out okay. And, like, I guess the jury's still out for that. But <laughs> mostly uh, we feel like we've, you know, developed our parents raised us to have a relationship with Jesus, and that's kind of what we've done. We have three kids, uh, 18-year-old daughter, Hope. Yeah. Uh, Phenomenal singer, by the way. 16-year-old son, Josiah. And Phenomenal then, hunter, by the way. And then almost nine, eight-year-old uh, son, Luke, that we adopted from China. Phenomenal personality, by yeah, the way. Really. We say he's going to be our negotiator. So I may have to send him uh, for some personal classes with you to help with his negotiation skills. But, uh, yeah, our family moved to Spring Hill uh, almost five years ago. Uh, we felt like that God was calling us to launch a church. Uh, I had served for almost uh, a decade, eight and a half years, at a mega church in, in Destin, Florida, Really learned a lot, was sharpened, got to see all kinds of crazy God things, growth, really exponential growth, and really didn't understand what was happening. But uh, towards the end of that time, we felt like the Lord was pushing us in a direction. So that's when we started praying about where, and we moved. Tell me real quick, like backing up a little bit, like about your youngest son, Luke. So Luke, you adopted him from China, correct? Correct. Correct. When did you know that you wanted to adopt? Why didn't you and Shannon want to have another kid? Maybe you couldn't have another kid, or were you like, no, we're adopting, and why China? Sure. So Shannon and I always felt like we would adopt. Um, So early on in our marriage, kind of a a silly reality is we loved Stephen Curtis Chapman, Uh and he adopted from China, and like we would go to his concerts, and he would share about that. And then one day Shannon was watching Oprah, Mm-hmm. And uh, it was Lisa Ling was doing a behind the scenes thing about orphanages in China. Yeah. And so Shannon saw like how kids were left for hours at a time, how they were strapped to toilets. And uh, really from that kind of that seeing that it's like a kind of a culmination of, hey, let's, let's get this in motion. And probably for years, Shannon would say, hey. Are we going to adopt? And I always knew we should adopt, and God was calling us to adopt from China, but I was never, like, ready, kind of. And yeah. um, one of our trips, when we lived in Destin, we would take trips to Nashville because we love country music and we mm-hmm. love food. Right. And so we would leave our biological children with my parents, and we would come up here, and one one of our trips, we went to uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman's adoption agency called Show Hope. 
And we went in there and I said, we said, listen, we want some information about adoption. And they were like, this isn't an adoption agency. We help fund adoptions, but you need to talk with the lady. And so they introduced us to Kathy, a lady named Kathy McKinney, and she was actually Stephen Curtis Chapman's nanny. Oh, wow. For his kids. And so she kind of told us, like, what were the next steps? And then from there, we engaged the process. And So Luke, you said, is eight now? Yep. And you adopted him at what age? He was two and a half, almost, almost three. So in reality, had you not adopted Luke, where do you think he would be right now? It's a great, great question. So Luke was uh, abandoned at, they think, two or three days old. Jeez. So he was discovered and placed in an orphanage there. And so he stayed in the same orphanage and had the same nannies for his whole life, which is really unique. If Luke hadn't been adopted, I mean, he probably would have stayed in the system until he was, you know, a teenager. And then mm -hmm. at that point, uh, it's kind of like figure it out. You know, really? you get pushed out. Rarely are there domestic adoptions in China. So... Is because I, I don't know the rea the the truth, but like you hear things like, China doesn't let you have more than one or two kids, and China doesn't value daughters the same way they value sons. Um, is the uh, is is the orphanage the orphanage is in China the same as America, or is it way different? It's way different. How so? And just I mean, you you could imagine, um, you know, some of. I guess maybe you couldn't imagine in reality, but like they're not, uh, you know, supplemented, uh, supported as well from the right. government or any of that. So, you know, it's really, like I said, with Luke having the same nannies was really in some ways probably miraculous and helped mm -hmm. even with his uh, ability to connect and the nurturing piece of him. So that was a, a blessing, but, you know, it's kind of like a roll of the dice with the orphanages and how well the care is because in each province, it's different. When did you know, because, you know, and I've heard you preach about it before. I, you know, we don't have to get too much into it, but it was challenging when he first came home because you, you think he's going to come to you and love you and all this stuff, and that didn't happen. But what was the moment that you knew, like, oh, dude, this guy knows I'm his dad? And, like, what was that moment? What happened? Sure, so... Again, in my mind, what happens with well, the adoption agency that we used, there were like eight or ten other families with us on this trip. And so uh, on Gotcha Day, that's the day that you go to basically like a government building uh, in the province, and then all the orphanages, bring, they bring the children to you. So we're with ten other American families. There's ten kids being placed that day. And so we're sitting in this room. Every family's already got their kid. In my mind, I think, you know, I'm this kid's savior. This is like Disney. Like, you know, I hear the yeah. background music. He's going <laughs> to run, hug me, just be so excited. Plus you're a cool guy. You're a good right, dad. Right. It's like it's going to be scored. thrilled. We had our family with us. Hope and Josiah were with us. You know, Hope was, I guess, been five years ago. She was five. She was 12. Josiah was 10. You know, it's like this is going to be this epic moment. And Luke is the last kid placed in our family. Everybody else got their children, and he did not want to come to us. Wow. So he had the same nannies, and so there was this attachment there. Yeah, He's like, who are these people? So it's almost like we had to pry him from there, yeah. from their arms. And he's just crying, like railing. 
so much so I had to take him outside. Like he did not want to go to Shannon at all. Um, and so he cried for about, I would say probably an hour and a half. And, um, it comes time for, we feel like our final papers and we get all get in the bus because we're all staying at the same hotel with these other families. When we get in the bus, it's like he's cried out. And it's like he, at that moment, kind of recognizes, oh, this is, to the best of his ability, mm -hmm. the handoff family for me. So we have this picture of us. We're in the back of the bus. I'm holding Luke. Like, Josiah's leaned in. Hope's leaned in. And Shannon's beside me. And it's just like, for the first time, a picture of family. And we learned, we since learned that it was actually a good thing that he cried so intensely at wow. the beginning because it's like he was able to kind of grieve and release that. Whereas certain families, their kids didn't cry. And later on in the process, it was harder on them. So, but that moment in the back of the bus, like, and this is, you know, you remember s smells and like yeah. moments and certain things in life. And like, this is bad, but like Luke, he smelled so bad. I mean, just from being in the orphanage, like sure. his his clothes were soiled. So I can remember just holding him and like all the thoughts of like, he'll never smell this way again. <laughs> right. As long as he's in yeah. my family, you know, like, and God's setting the lonely in families was like a like. <sighs> I'm sure as a pastor, you're, you were getting all these analogies and, you know, yeah, I mean, it was, metaphors, right? It was crazy. Like, you know, there's a couple times in my life I know I've heard the Holy Spirit and that day, I'm outside of this government building. Cars are going by. I'm holding this kid that's screaming. And uh, the Lord just, you know, he just said, listen, man, I'm I'm fulfilling my word. Psalm 68 says the Lord sets the lonely in families. I'm doing it. I don't need your sermons. I don't need your songs. I'm going to do it. All around the world, God's fulfilling it. And, like, it was just a picture of got this screaming kid. He's fighting the very thing that he needs and he longs yeah. for, but it's just how I do my work in the earth. How do you see, like, making the transition, you know, obviously a pastor here, you know, in, in Tennessee, uh, parents that are having trouble relating to their kids. I mean, you had this, you know, kid that you showed them love. I mean, you see all walks of life, good, bad, and ugly. There's a lot of parents out there right now that don't even know how to relate to their kids. Um, what, what do you say to those parents that are like, I can't, com you know, communicate with my son. I've never even really held my son like that ever since they were a kid and stuff. What, what happens and how do you help them? I think about, um, with our children, obviously there are different phases and different things that happen in life. And, you know, sometimes you, you hit a home run. Sometimes you strike out, you know, right. parenting is like, you know, one of my mentors said to me, he said, Jeremy, parenting is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Mm, yes. And, uh, you know, I think it's true. And so on some levels, I think to those parents that are having a hard time, I would say, you know, give yourself a break from that standpoint of things. But the other thing I would say is if you don't have the capacity or you've not developed those skills, find people that are great at it and take them to lunch. Ask mm -hmm. them questions. I love to watch parents that have raised great adult children, right. children that, you know, they leave the home, they get jobs, they, they become healthy, contributing citizens to our communities and, and places. And I ask them, what did you do? Mm -hmm. And so I also think about for parents, like, 
I think it's Josh McDowell that has coined this statement. He said that rules without relationship leads to rebellion. So sometimes people try to parent with just rules. Right. Do it this way. You got to do this. You got to, and they don't have relationships. So that creates rebellion in their kids. On the flip side, if you have a relationship without rules, you'll create kids that feel entitled. <laughs> relationship without rules get entitled. Eli, you're shaking your head. You agree with that. <laughs> so I just think like having those two statements, even though they're they're simple, they can provide ditches for our parenting. Okay. So I don't want to be overly governed by rules and that and don't have relationship with my children because then that only produce rebellion in them. I think as a young parent, we had our children young. I'll be mm-hmm. 43 in May. Hope's going to be 18. I think probably with her when I was a younger parent, I slanted more towards that. You know, so I, I realize now on the backside, I have to come alongside with that a little bit more. But then on this side, like if I just have relationship without rules, then I can pr- produce an in, some entitled kids that think it should be given to them. And so the balance of those, I think, can help with connection. Absolutely. I mean, there's... I'm going through two teenagers right now, my teenage boys. What I'm noticing with with my oldest, Brayden, is, I mean, he's smart. He's so smart. But I'm getting to the point to where, like, he feels like he knows everything. And I don't know about you. I can't, you know, because you're a pastor, I can't imagine you being a yeller. <laughs> I'm a stinking yeller. Like, I'm going to back off the mic because I'm going to yell. Like, I'll be like, you know, confessions with my pastor right now. Like, dude, shut up. Get over here. Like, <laughs> You don't know everything you think you know. Like, we got we got in kind of a bad one the other day. I mean, the kid knows that I love him, but that's been my biggest struggle right now is, like, listen to me. Like, I feel like, you know, I you know with what I do and stuff, like, I have a broad platform. People that want my advice want to listen to me. And my 15-year-old, like, sometimes the kid doesn't want my advice. Like, he don't think I'm cool when a bunch of other people think, like, that's frustrating for me. 100%. Help me. Well, I mean, you know, for me, sometimes my kids will be like, Dad, Dad, don't go preacher on me. Oh, you for know? sure. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I think true success, target that I'm shooting for, I think is when those who know you best respect you most. And you realize, okay, there are times where I won't be the loudest voice in my kid's life. So, you know, for me, like that's why I think it's important having other connected relationships because with like-minded people. Yeah. Because at some point, you know, I want to. I've told people I want to reap from other people what I've sown into other kids' lives. You know, so I don't care how my kids hear it. If I'm around people that are going to say the yeah. same thing as I am, then they'll they'll wind up where they're supposed to be. That's smart. Let's talk about that a little bit because you know surrounding yourself with the type of people that you want to be part of raising your kids, but also, especially as a pastor, not putting yourself in a bubble because I have so many minister friends, of course, not name any names, but there's so much in their bubble. They almost can't relate to normal people out in the world because they're just like, you know, this is the kingdom of God. This is, you know, where do I, you know, pastoral role and they they're in this bubble and then the other side, which we, I definitely want to talk to you about, is they become so much in the world that they lose their family, their kids, mm. their platform, their ministry, and they fall. Sure. How did you find that balance? Because, I mean, I'm not just saying it's because you're sitting in front of me. I, I feel like you have a pretty good balance. We could all work on some stuff, but you you can relate to people on the street, and you could also relate to people in the church. 
How do you find that good niche where you're surrounding yourself with the people you want to, but not excluding yourself from what's going on in the world? Right. I, I think I use this phrase just from a biblical context or when I look at scripture, most people with scripture or anything, you can see it with politics, you can see it in our world, with with race, with gender, all the hot topics. People want to be either or people. Yeah. And they want to polarize things instead of it being like both and, which I think is the more the message that I see of the scripture. Now that's not like, you know, not having a stance on things or like just but but I think there's this this tension of okay how do I live in the world but not of it how do I have relationships but not be overcome I think there's that that true tension and so one of the words that I I'm realizing about my own self is just having to be intentional so one of our one of my good friends is doing work in a third world country in a very highly um, tense situation mm-hmm. and he is watching people come to relationship with Christ and from other faiths that have the potential to really lose their life and a lot of what he's shared is so many people get in a Christian bubble mm-hmm. and so all they have is Christian friends right and so as, as I think about my own life as a pastor like just purely honest like I'm around Christian people all the time by default by default right. and if i don't intentionally like have circles uh and, and go i have to go to places on purpose to to make sure that i have connections with people that aren't super religious aren't you know swallowed up by their own situation and christianese right for lack of a better term just being like in, intentional about that the other thing i think is like people are attracted to real and authentic. Mm-hmm. And so I think of anything about my own personal life, it's always been a conviction, like, just to be that. And so, like, fighting trying to be something that I'm not or uh, to be something that I that I want to be, but just be kind of being true. And what I've realized is where, where people are, like, you know, Jesus lovers all the time or if they're disconnected from God or not interested, as long as I'm authentic, p- people find that refreshing because there's so much fake yeah. and not real. Absolutely. And so, like, you know, I think, one, I have to be intentional to make sure that I'm not surrounded by just people that are just like me. Right. Um, and I have to be be focused and also uh, authentic to, okay, this is who I am. I think people get... <laughs> So if people get too uh, they're too heavenly minded, they're no earthly good right. kind of idea. Sure. They're, they're out of touch, not relatable. Or then people get too like they want so much to have a platform, or they want so much to have influence. Yeah. They try to go about it the wrong. I, I mean, I'll tell you straight up. That's one thing that I'm really <laughs> burned out on is pastors trying to be cool, like. I don't know. Like, I don't think pastors should be dorks, but I don't think pastors should be cool, man. Like, I I understand being relatable to people, especially the younger generation. But when your Instagram is filled with your shoes, your watches, your cars, oh, by the way, look at this beautiful church that God blessed us with. Like, I'm I'm torn because I, I feel like especially these bigger pastors, these cooler pastors, it becomes more about that than the ministry. And Trust me, like, 
I am 100% on board with the people of God tithing to take care of our ministers. Like, I, I don't want you to have to go get a job as my pastor. I want the church to fund you so that you can be with the Lord, concentrate on the word of God, and, and shepherd me, shepherd the people. I want that to come from my household, my bank account, and everyone else is there. I have no problem taking care of my ministers. But when your ministry becomes about the prophet, that's where people lose me. And I see that going on so much. Why does that happen to you? I mean, what do you think? Like, Why are pastors trying to be so cool? I, I think, um, you know, usually we try to... Uh, overcome an abuse with a neglect or the pendulum will swing. And so, like, I think there's been probably this movement probably over over the last 20 years uh, in churches, Mm -hmm. and we've come to learn how to do church well and attract crowds and attract people, which in turn sometimes has generated platforms. Mm -hmm. And, And sometimes I think our influence has out kicked our intimacy. So I don't believe any pastor or shepherd usually starts with like a wrong motive. Now, are there times that's the case? Yes. But most people get in ministry because they want to impact the kingdom. They want to see people's lives changed. But sometimes like our success, my favorite theologian, Dallas Willard says, nothing fails like success. (laughs) And so sometimes we get successful or we get followers or we get power or we get money and we leave our really our pursuit of Jesus for our pursuit of influencing people and then it becomes about other things and I think it becomes a slippery you know slope towards like you know we leave how we start the reason we started one of my the saddest uh, texts in all the Bible is with Samson Samson was a man who had great might and strength and, like, would just whip people. And we know that Delilah deceived him and kept after him and kept after him. But there's a scripture in uh, the book of Judges that says that Samson got up to go to battle like he had always gone, but he didn't realize that God wasn't with him. Oh, jeez. And so sometimes I think in the midst of, like, success or doing the yeah. deal, like, we just think, well, we'll just do what we've done. And, yep. and not only do we, we start losing our influence, but more than that, we've lost our intimacy. I feel like most guys that, you know, we see have maybe had failures or struggles or walked away from things, at some point they left their personal Bible reading, their personal prayer time, doing things in secret where nobody sees. Like, usually what happens is we start and we do those things that only heaven sees. So the Bible says that he who does things in secret will be rewarded openly. So then God rewards us openly with a platform or with influence. But if we don't keep going to the secret place, then what happens in the outer place ends up destroying our lives. God is all-knowing. God knows these big-time pastors are going to fall. Why does he let it happen? Why does he let them get elevated? If he knows they're going to fall. And when they're up there, it hurts so many people so much more. Like, why does he let that stuff happen? It's probably like a a million-dollar question. So (laughs) I'll try to answer and not dance around it. um, Because I think, you know, 2020 um, was just... 
you know, God did some great things in the dark in a lot of people's lives, but he also exposed some things. And there were yes. some things that happened in 2020 with some prominent people that were, you know, borderline shaking for me even. And, you know, I, I, I mean, we saw it all. We saw pastors commit suicide. We saw pastors infidelity. We saw it all. Yeah. And so I, I think, again, you know, this scripture that, that talks about that God desires for uh, Second Second Corinthians chapter 2, the Bible says we have this excellency. We have this treasure in hidden vessels, but it will speak of the excellency of him and not of us. I don't think God causes all things. I I think he causes them to work for good. So when failures happen in men's lives, I think it's an opportunity for us to recenter our hope and our hearts on the person of Jesus, the chief cornerstone, rather than other things. Um, But I also think that, you know, I think it doesn't have to happen. I right. th- I think it's I think it's fewer and far between of men who haven't, but there are people out there who have not fallen, and the Bible says that He is able to keep us from falling. Jude right. twenty four. So um, again, God has this ability to use things, but I don't think I don't think it's His desire at all that that people bring uh, shame or reproach upon the name of Jesus upon their own family. You know. Those are the things that break my heart. It's never right. just about the dude that falls. I mean, he has things that he's having to work through, but you think about their family, you think about their influence, all the fallout of that. And then you have people that are just, you know, some people are like glad about it. They're hoping they fall. Sure. Then you have other people that are like, well, kind of overlooking it or winking at it or like, wanting there to be this immediate restoration because this person's whatever. Like it just, there's a lot of like kind of factors that go into that. I think obviously the the, the primary target is, okay, I'm going to stay close and clean to Jesus. And one pastor friend said, I'm going to keep my nose clean if it takes both sleeves, kind of that kind of <laughs> deal. I'm going to live pure before God. Um, and then, you know, when things do happen, we know that there. God's heart is restoration, and he has a way of refocusing people's lives. But I think, again, ultimately, it, his desire is that we walk worthy of our calling. I think, I mean, that's what hurts me so much because, I mean, I grew up an 80s baby under, you know, in, in a Pentecostal church. Not the weird ones where they drink poison and play with snakes, but the evangelic ones where the power of God comes on. So I saw that at such a young age. And... It had such a big impact on my life, and I saw my family members and, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins. There was such a move of God, and then I saw prominent leaders of that movement fall, and it affected my family members to where here we are now in 2021. They haven't really been walking in any sort of power because that person fell 30 years ago. Now, that's 100% on them because you should never look to the, the person, but... Having that platform and falling out, it it hurts a lot of people. And so now when I see, I, I guess my struggle is I don't ever want to judge anybody and I don't yeah. ever want to come off as legalistic. Sure. But at the same time, I don't want to compromise so much to adopt a belief or a, or a philosophy like, well, you know, Pastor Jeremy, God knows I'm a man and God knows I'm a fall and I'm a sinner saved by grace. Like I'm already setting myself up for a permission slip to cheat on my wife, to go get drunk, to go make a stupid decision because God knows I'm a sinner. 
But at the you know, flip side of that is I don't want to become so righteous to where like I judge the people who do. But what I'm trying to say is when I see these pastors posting Instagram pictures, walking around in their board shorts, showing off their body, their hottest, you know, stuff like it just doesn't resonate well with me. Like it, it's almost like you're, you're like, yeah, you know, that's going to happen. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, for you, one of the things I respect about you the most is you came from what I would call a mega church in Florida, right? Would you call it a mega church? Sure. Yeah. What's a mega church? Anything over 5,000? Mm, yeah. I, probably they say anything over two, really. I mean, and, most churches in America are under 100. And you came from a place that had like, what, 5,000? Yeah. 000? Between five and six. And you were number two in that church, right? I mean, yeah. you ran the service and everything and, you know, I already know you're a fantastic speaker, so I'm sure it was even better there. The thing I respect about you the most is you left that place and you came to Spring Hill, Tennessee. You didn't bring anybody with you. I've seen so many pastors leave because they're not the guy and they take half the church with them. Can't stand it. You gave me a book that changed a lot of things for me in a positive way uh, called Three Kings. Uh, that was awesome. And I looked, as I was reading that book, I was comparing it to you. And I'm like, dude, no wonder. Like, this guy lived his life after three kings. And that's one thing I respect most about you is you left what most pastors dream of to come here. And you started with nothing. And now we're growing. Why did you do that? And what, I mean, did you know it was a calling or, sure. or what? I mean, I've tried to... Uh, think about my life in decades. So I, I went to the church I was at in Florida in 2007. And after being there about six months or almost a year, the pastor said, we were just talking. He said, you need to think about your life in decades. And, you know, at that time, I'm like, you know, if I'm thinking about next month, I'm doing good. That's you a know? good word, man. So thinking about my life in decades, I was 29 years old when I went there. And um, so, again, we served there for eight years, almost nine years, and we were approaching another end of a decade. And like, you know, some of my question was, what am I going to, what am I going to do? God, is this what you have for me? Because genuinely I was in a good spot. You know, um, there wasn't much that I wasn't able to do or see or, you know, encounter. And so it was like, you know, an amazing opportunity for us. But we felt like either we were going to just stay there and do the deal and, you know, retire and live on in Destin around 30A where everybody wants to go, or uh, maybe God might be wanting us to do something different, saying something different. So we felt like God was saying, you know, it's time to lead something. Because I was either going to like, you know, be there for the rest of my life. I could have done that or lead something. And so we had this kind of holy discontent that we just kind of started praying through. And, you know, we made a list of 10 areas. Because I said to my wife, I said, you know, if we started a church, where would it be? We could go back to Gainesville, Georgia, which mm -hmm. is where I grew up, or we could maybe go to Nashville. And, you know, she said to Gainesville, Georgia, not just no. But so we said, what about Nashville? And I'm, I love, again, the Nashville area, but I knew I wasn't a city guy. So we made a list of like 10 areas around the Nashville area. And we came up here in April of 16 and did like a prayer recon weekend. And I'd, I'd, never, <laughs> been to, I'd never been to Spring Hill before. 
uh, even though we'd made multiple trips to Franklin and Asheville. And when we came to the Spring Hill City, we just felt like this is it. That's fantastic. And one of the things that, you know, I love about you, because I, I love talking about the power of God. Like, I'm a Jesus freak. I'm not a religious guy, but I'm a Jesus freak. And all of Jesus's ministry was the miraculous, healing, casting out demons, like all the stuff that most Christians freak out about because people have messed it up. And the thing I've appreciated most about you is you come from that background as well, but you don't speak in tongues from the stage. You don't get too crazy or animated, but at the same time, you definitely don't discourage it. And we're in a place to where I love living here in Tennessee because everyone does have some sort of reverence for God, which is great. But a lot of people have that religious background where there's like a ceiling, like they don't let you go too far. So my question is, how have you found the balance of trying trying not to compromise or offend the people who aren't at that spiritual level, but at the same time, you're very open about it. Like you talk about prophecy, you talk about speaking in tongues, and you're very pro-healing. How have you found that balance and how is it working out for our church? Yeah. It's a great question. So I, I think about Jesus himself. So the only people that had problems with Jesus were the religious people. Right. But everybody loved Jesus. <laughs> right. Really, he could draw crowds and everybody who encountered his life, they always left better. And so, you know, earlier we were talking about like, why does it seem like guys fall and what happens? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think sometimes there's people don't marry the fact that that just like we're born, we have to be formed spiritually. Mm -hmm. And so the, the biblical kind of idea or principle is like I can become the kind of person Jesus is. I can become like him in nature, but I can also do the things he did. That's his power. And so that's what we've tried to marry with Christ Chapel. We've tried to paint in front of people, listen, you can become like Jesus in nature. You can be formed. You can be mature. You can grow in love. You can walk in, in with God and know him. But you can also have power because that was who Jesus was. And, and the, the, the tendency and the temptation in our lives religiously is to, like, see God's word and either, like, we're going to do one of two things. I say this often. We're either going to lower God's word to our experience yeah. or we're going to raise our experience to his word. And so when I look at the life of Jesus, that's the target for our lives to become like him. I see what the things that Jesus did and what he said, what he did, and what he told us to do. He healed the sick, cleansed the leopard, raised the dead, healed blind eyes, all those things. So, like, that's still the target. I, I don't get to, like, explain that away. And so I may not have experienced it yet. I don't feel condemned because of that, but I see it as an invitation. Jesus is after me becoming like him and also doing what he did. And I think sometimes we don't see what he did because we're not allowing him to make us who he is. And when those two things get married together, then you have a mature person that walks in love that the world's looking for, and they also have answers. Because I think in a lot of ways, the church has become irrelevant. People yeah. look at the scoreboard, and we're losing because we don't have power. Or if we have power, it's weird, and then we don't have a life that can match it. Or we're just, you know, let's pray and read and study the Scriptures, and, you know, we're bored out of our mind. And we don't have results. I think it's always relationship, 
and results. That's what God's after. What do you say to the people that tell you, well, you sound a little too humanistic, and how can you say that you have power? Because God has the power, you don't have the power. So why are you encouraging people to have power? Because that's how they end up falling, because yeah. they get too much of it. I, I would say, let's look at the scripture. You know, let's start there, you know, and guys that I followed growing up, they would say, it's not my words, it's God's. And the more I pastor and shepherd people, the more I realize it's true. God's word is offensive, but let's just look at it, okay? When when the Bible says when Jesus left, it's better that he leaves than he stays with people. Right. Why? So he can give us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will come on us and we'll have what? The word says power. power. That's what we'll have. Then in Romans, Paul said the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will dwell in you. He'll quicken your mortal body. So the power that we access is the power of God. But he gives me power to live in life, to live. This is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith, power to live above. People are looking for that. And so to say we can't have power is really dumb because people are look. they'll look for power in their money. They'll look for power in their health, power in their job. And when those things aren't there, what do you got? So the, the path of God is, is he, again, he gives me life, but he gives me power, the ability to live above. That's really what grace is. Grace is not my license to sin. It's empowerment to live above and to live victorious in life. Have you noticed that most of the people who walk away from that, you know, power, like, oh, well, you shouldn't get too high on that power, name it and claim it stuff, are those usually people that have been hurt pursuing that? And so they walk away from it. They prayed for mom and mom didn't get healed. They prayed for little Johnny and little Johnny still died or, you know, or, you know, they wanted this job to get prosperity and they didn't get it. So they just kind of settle. hundred percent. I would say a lot of times our trap or tendency can be to make a theology out of our pain. So, um, I think from our pain, we can find purpose, and God can use that in our life. Uh, it's either going to make us bitter or better. I know those are cliches, but those are it's just really true. And so, you know, I've laid my hands on people, and they died. You know, but I, I, I just refuse to say, well, it's just must not have been this or that. Like, I'm still getting in the batter's box. I may strike out. I may walk. I may get hit. I may... But, but I still see what Jesus says in his word and what he invites me into. So I'm going to keep believing for that because I think that's my responsibility as a follower of Christ. Scripture that has been echoing in my mind, one of the things that we were talking about is what's God been saying lately to you. And I, this, this passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 12, I think it's verse 11, where the Bible says to believers, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. And a lot of times I grew up and everybody stopped there. You know, I, I overcome by the blood of the lamb. I have nothing to do with that. Before the foundations of the world, God said, my son's going to be slain. His, his blood is going to be shed for the redemption of mankind, for their victory. I had nothing to do with that. Word of testimony, I think the test, what is the testimony of Jesus? Some of that's, we would say, the spirit of prophecy or seeing what God has done. We see it through the narrative of scripture. God always came through. Yeah. We see it in the lives of people. I'm sitting across the table from someone who's watched God miraculously touch his children, Amen. even in the last 60 days. <laughs> yep. You know, miracles. Like, that's a, that's a testimony of God. 
those two things. And then lastly is they love their lives not unto death, meaning they were dead to their world. They were dead to their reputation. I think many times people don't trust the power of God because they have too much pride. Well, what if I pray and it doesn't work? What, what if, if God I pray doesn't and come? It does work. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I think when we're already dead to our our world, our pride, our ways, and we're still living in this world, it gives us an ability to tap into something. Because when I've already lost everything right. and God's everything, then I'm really ready to go then. I love it. All right, I have a really tough question. Because I have seen ministers strategically carve their message around this philosophy that I'm not sure I agree with, but does God allow the pain? Does God cause the pain? Because uh, we've seen this. It's it's your pain that will lead you to your prosperity. It's your, you know, your history that becomes his story, which I believe all that stuff. Some of it is self-inflicted. Some of it you can't explain. Like, my son, my daughter being born with cystic fibrosis. They didn't do anything to cause that. Terry and I didn't do anything to cause that. It's a genetic thing. So, and you're not going to offend me, so you could speak yeah. where you're at. Like, does God allow that or does God cause that? Because there's no explanation. And if he is all powerful and if he is sovereign, how does that happen? He either allowed it or he caused it or what? Does God cause or allow the pain? So this is, a, this is a great question, and I'll say I'm going to answer it to the best of my understanding, and I think somebody's going to be right when we stand before God. You're right. <laughs> um, but I, I would say I try to look at everything through the lens of Jesus. Okay, so let's look at Jesus' life. Now, Jesus came. He lived a sinless life, spotless. He performed miracles, did things. He wasn't accepted in his hometown he lived 30 years on the earth, had three years of public ministry, and then it was time for him to be the sacrificial lamb. Right. My question is, God could have done it a different way. God could have allowed Jesus not to suffer. Right. God could have allowed Jesus not to go to Gethsemane, not to go to the cross. I think the ultimate question is, do we win? And I would say yes, because the Bible says that he always causes us to triumph. He leads us into victory. Wow. There will always be a resurrection. Now, when does that happen and how that happens? I don't know. I always feel like it's my job as a believer to pray towards that. Right. And be careful not to give too much energy and effort towards dodging difficult times. Because I think how I endeavor and how I handle myself through difficult times can reveal things. Jesus still had to go through Gethsemane. And in the garden, he prayed, Lord, if it's your will... I'd, rather, I'd really like to not have to go through this, but because I, I surrender fully to that, okay? So he's crucified, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's put in a grave. But we know that that's not the end of the story. So I, I think, you know, Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble. You'll walk through things. There'll be things that you can't explain and control. There'll be things that, you know, shouldn't have happened that did and that didn't happen that should have. Right. I don't always know all of that, but I know that my inheritance one will always be resurrection and victory. And I believe I always have to pray and believe towards that because I think it positions me and postures me to endure because the scripture says endure hardship as a good soldier. I don't believe in a, I don't believe in a theology of just like 
suffering. Sure, me neither. But will we suffer? The Bible says that, so I can suffer well. Uh, but there's certain yeah. things I shouldn't have to go through. And then I also think about this: the flip side of, of entering into the passion of Jesus, okay? So Jesus willingly, the Bible says, no man take, he said, no man takes my life. I willingly lay it down. So I think real maturity is this invitation to not just hit people with lightning bolts of power, but it's also the invitation for me to lay down my life. So when I willingly lay down my life for other people, then I think that invites the power of God in a unique way, just like Jesus laid down his life, but ultimately the new resurrection would be my final story. I love the way that you just explained that. And I've been under your ministry now for two years. Either I'm not listening in church or I never asked you that question, but I've never heard you say it that way. And I loved it. <laughs> Maybe it's good as captured on the podcast so I can re-listen to it. I mean, seriously, that was so good because, I mean, I've always focused on, like you basically told me without even maybe you realizing is that, dude, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Like, almost kind of like when the disciples asked, who made this man blind? Mm. Was it the sin of his mom, dad? And Jesus was like, doesn't matter. God's going to get the glory. But he healed the guy. Right. We adopt a philosophy of, well, maybe God wants that person to be blind. Maybe God wants that girl to not have children because you don't know if she has a kid what it's going to end up. Right. I don't believe that. Right. I believe he's the giver of life. He's the giver of healing. So I always pursue that. And the right. way you just explained that gave me a permission slip to pursue that without getting caught up in, you know, the what's the word they use? Don't get caught up like the minutia and yep. stuff of, you know, things that don't matter. Right. pursue healing, pursue life, pursue, you know, and if you go through that stuff, you know, show Christ. My, my buddy Todd White, you know, gives, gives the best analogy. It's like, if you squeeze an orange, you expect orange juice. If you squeeze an apple, you expect apple juice. It would be weird if you squeezed an orange and apple juice came out. And then he says, why isn't it equally as weird when you squeeze a Christian and everything except Jesus comes out. Right. So when we get squeezed, we need to radiate, uh, radiate, and you know, pour Jesus out on everybody. And the way you explain that was fantastic. That's why you're my pastor, yeah. baby. <laughs> I just still think, you know, for people like right theology is important. Right doctrine is important right? because how we believe. Really, I, I, we say it this way, you belong first, Christ accepts us, we believe, and then we become. I think how we think about things is important, but I think it's equally important to think through the lens of Jesus. He's the model for our lives and the mentor. Like So we have to process that through him. And I have to ask myself this question, what did Jesus contend for? It's a good question. Jesus never explained things away for why they didn't happen. That's really good. You're he he, he always contended for breakthrough, healing, life. Just what Jesus said, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and control. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. So, like, that's why when we love our lives not to death, so... Like Paul said, if I live, I'm going to go live on for Jesus. If I die, I gain. Most Christians are, are, aren't there. 
And because of that, we're either adopting theology that explains things away or we're scared out of our minds. And so, like, I think getting back to, okay, what did Jesus say? What did he do? What did he tell us to do? What is he like? You know? As a pastor, what is the most common belief you see your people or most Christians embrace that you think is detrimental to their life and they need to change? I think most people don't believe that they can change. Wow, like how so? In anything. I think people think, well, this is how it's going to be. And they may not say it, but their actions don't match up with if they do believe. And I think most people think, okay, so I would think, one, I would say that, number one, most people don't believe they can change. Two, I think most people uh, believe that God's going to do all the work. So people will come to church or people will sit under a sermon or the people will sing a song and they think, man, transformation is going to come that way. But every other area of their life, whether it be in their finances, whether it be with parenting, whether it be in their career, they're willing to apply themselves to get better at it. Right. So because we think, okay, grace is free, I can't earn it, I can't merit it, we think on some levels God's going to do it all for us. Well, grace is not about earning, but it is about effort. It's about me applying myself. It's about me partnering with God, being a joint heir with him so that I can see transformation. That's why the Bible says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I have to, my transformation is directly connected to my mind. Well, I have to control what I think about. That's work. Yep. That's so good. And it's, I mean, it's such a good analogy too, because like, you know, if you're going to be a doctor, you got to go to school, you got to train, you got to be a good doctor. If you're going to be, you know, salesperson, you want to, you know, be a better sales, whatever, whatever it is. But it's like, okay, when we were a Christian, we get saved and, you know, everything's read, done. Yeah, everything's done. I'll read my Bible, check a box, but, you know, well, God's God and He's sovereign and, Whatever happens, happens. I hate that, too, because, like, we matter. We play a part. We do have decisions. We do have free will. Like, if, you know, the if, if God was ultimately going to do, if God was ultimately going to do, then he wouldn't tell us to renew our minds. He wouldn't give us commandments. He wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like, so. 100%. He wouldn't invite us into John 14, 12, which is the scripture that had messed up my life up as a little kid, and it still follows me to this day. Jesus said, the works I do, you'll do and greater works, because I'm going to the Father. So like realizing that I enter into this relationship with Jesus, and I become his disciple. I become his apprentice. I learn how to live my life from him. So therefore, I learn how to think like he thinks. I learn how to speak like he speaks. I learn how to partner in ministry with him the way he did it. And so like that requires, um, you know, effort on my part. I know two young men that I'm crazy proud of them. One of them is a dentist. He has his own practice in Freeport, Florida. He just bought it. Then there's another guy that's going to be an orthopedic surgeon. He's at UAB right now in his fourth year. He's going to do like a fellowship in either at either Vanderbilt or in Denver, Colorado. Brilliant young men, but they've given their lives right. to learning how to do what they do. And I think, you know, I can't change. God will do it for me. What that produces a lot of times, I think, in the body of Christ is just lazy people. Yep. I wish it wasn't that way, but it's just true. 
Um, and lazy Christians bother you, don't they? They really do. <laughs> Man, we got to have you back. Uh, will you come back? I would love to come back. Can you back. be a reoccurring guest? 100%. It's been an honor. Very um, great. Let me ask you this. End on, you know, for men. Because, um, sure. you know, we have a men's group on Friday morning that you've been leading for, you know, since before I was there. And it's it's phenomenal. What's What's the number one struggle with Christian men right now that you see and that you're helping with? I, I think... Um, I think men genuinely want to know how to do it. I think they really want to be spiritual men. I think they're wired for that. You know, the group on Friday morning, sometimes we'll have as many as 30 guys there at 6 a.m. Like people getting in the room, it lets me know they want to know how to do it. But I think there is this, you know, I think some of them are learning. I'm trying to remind them, listen, guys, it's not about trying because if you're trying, you can quit. But if you're training, it's different. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm training myself to, to know how to walk with God first. Second thing is, I think, honestly, I think most men, it's going to be a big statement. We'll probably have to come back and just do a podcast yes. on this. But I think most p- men don't know how to lead their wives. Ooh, jeez. We can't stop now. You got to give me a little bit more. What does that mean? I, I, I just, I, I think women long to be led and even though, you know, my wife's a very strong woman. I think your wife's a very strong woman. They're very put together. They know what they want. They have clear direction. So it's not that type of thing. But I think, uh, you know, women, they want us to be the spiritual head. They want us to, to lead. They want us to pray with them. You know, my wife and I just came through like a little leadership thing this past weekend with uh, some of our staff about marriage. And one of the things that I asked Shannon was, what's, what's your top five needs? And I shared my top five needs. And one of her top five needs was, let's pray together more. I'm a pastor. Wow. And so, like, I think men feel intimidated by that. But at the end of the day, like, if yeah. you just committed every day to grabbing your wife's hand, even if it's just before you go to bed and just pray and ask God to bless a couple things, to give wisdom, whatever, it would astronomically take the spiritual climate in your home up. My wife said one of the sexiest things that I do is when, like, I grab her by the face and say something like a prayer to her, speak, you know, when I talk to God about my wife in front of my wife, it's like a major turn on for her. Like, you know, I'm not trying to get too weird or that, but, like, it's, that's attractive to her. That's, like, and men don't do that. And even still, like, knowing that, like, it's intimidating to do, but... I know she likes it. And I think men feel, you know, it's like anything. Like, like my dad is super handy. Like, all of his life worked with tools and and all kinds of things. And he said to me multiple times, Jeremy, when I pass these things on to you, you're going to have so many things you don't know what to do with. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes when I go to work on things or do stuff, I feel vulnerable because it's not what I do all the time. And so I think it's that way spiritually sometimes for men. We're wired to be spiritual men and to be spiritual leaders, but because we don't practice it, we feel awkward and vulnerable, and we naturally don't move towards that. So sometimes even I think men get in the room on Friday morning because I say things that I don't say on Sunday morning, and I bust people's balls, for lack of a better term, 
Sorry, ladies. Um, <laughs> but I think on some levels, the men are, they want me to lead for them. And so part of just practicing is, okay, what are some small steps that I can do to just to begin leading spiritually? Because I see it uh, just, I see it in our in our church at times where men are, are struggling to lead their wives. And and maybe, you know, women are, are looking for that, are looking for you to try, and men feel vulnerable about it. And um, I just had a thought. Okay. And I'll close with this. Please promise me that you will either start recording Friday morning or do some sort of podcast because I travel a lot. I do a lot of stuff with my family and I miss Friday more than I would like to. And when I say I miss it, it's not just that I'm not there. Like I miss it because it's so good. You're so real and you're so relatable. Like you say things on Friday morning that you could never say on a pulpit on Sunday and as a man, like, that makes me feel like I'm in. Like, right. you know, so what do we got to do to make that happen? And also, because I know a lot of guys speak up that they wouldn't want their wives to hear certain things. Like, sure. I don't know, maybe we could create, like, a password or, like, a man-only thing. I don't know. I'm just saying that. But I think not only would it help a lot of people in the church and a lot of men, but I think that thing would blow up because it's real. Sure. And it's only, you know, after we ask the questions and stuff, I mean, it's only like 37, 36 minutes. Right. So, I don't know, just to put a thought in there. And I want you back. I love you for coming here. Back. Thank you. Thank you. You promise you'll be back? I promise. Thank you for having me. You're the man. You Pastor are. Jeremy Candidate. It's J-E-R-I-M-Y. You can follow him on Facebook and Instagram. Your Instagram handle is? My name, Jeremy Candidate. J-E-R-I-M-Y. K-A-N-A-D-A-Y. Yep. And then, of course, his church, our church, is Christ Chapel TN. You can follow us on YouTube, Christ Chapel TN. Is it underscore TN? No. Nope. Christ Chapel TN. Uh, all services are online. All services are recorded, especially nowadays. A lot of people like to watch church online. Pastor Jeremy puts a big emphasis on getting in the room and actually spiritually slaps me without knowing when I'm not there. <laughs> when I'm not there on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you miss me, to be honest? I miss you. <laughs> Greatly. I miss your you worshiping. It brings a different uh, atmosphere. I miss your amens. I miss all those things. I love saying. I'm good for about three or four amens. I want to give 100, but I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> and, like, because I don't want people to Just bring a doing... tambourine the next time you I go. know, seriously. I want to be, like, one of the, uh, you know, the, the what do they call it? The Worship they... banners. Yeah. Flags. They... Flag. The flag. One of the flag people. Do you think we'll ever go to flags? I don't know. <laughs> I went to one church one time where they had flags and then they had like an artist painting in the corner, like a prophetic picture. That's strong. It it gets there, man. That would freak I can a lot only, of people out. But I it's... can only hope. All right. You're the man. I love you. That's love Pastor you. Jeremy Candidate, Christ Chapel TN. And please, if you've liked this podcast, as always, please make sure you like. Please make sure you subscribe to Level Up with Matt Rogers. Also, leave a comment. Give us a rating. Share it with your friends. Eli, we're starting to get some ratings, some comments. Do you like it? I love it, man. You it's do? Great. Yeah, oh, yeah. You've been quiet. I haven't seen any bad. Well, I'm just listening and getting all the wisdom. I love it. You are? It's good. That's You're usually where I'm at. I'm usually a listener, and then I process, and then I'll talk about it like four days later. Well, because people like <laughs> always ask, like, how come Eli doesn't talk more? So, Well, it's because he be talks so much. No, I'm just kidding. Don't be shy, Eli. No, we're good. 
All right. Well, thanks for always. That's Eli. Like, subscribe, share, and leave us a rating. This has been another week of Level Up. Thank you.